Hello, listener. So glad you've turned in for today's sermon. I just wanted to let you know that I am aware that there are a number of places in this recording where my voice cuts out for a few seconds. I do not know why that happens. We're working on fixing it, but up till now it's been very sporadic and hard to trace. I realize that it can be distracting. I hope you can just plow through anyway. Thank you again very much for listening, and I wish you God's blessing. So if you have a Bible, uh, open it to Acts chapter 12. Uh, it'll appear on the screen otherwise, either here in the building or at your home. We're going to read through to the second to the last verse. About that time, Herod the king, this is Herod Agrippa, who is the grandson of Herod the Great. You may remember the stories, particularly in Luke, of King Herod, who killed the um, the children of uh, of Bethlehem, the King Herod who cut off the head of John the Baptist, the King Herod who's before whose uh, tribunal Jesus came at some point. That is this man's grandfather, just so you can place that. Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When they realized this, they went to, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he looked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl, when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. 
Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And I'll just comment on this little story because it's not, I'm not going to comment on any further. But the Jewish historian Josephus also tells this same story. He gives a little more detail and some of the details are a little different. But in essence, he tells this exact same story about the death of Herod. And then the last verse, but the word of God increased and multiplied. I don't know if you've ever heard of Miroslav Volf. He uh, is a Yugoslavian and was raised amongst the ethnic and religious conflict in communist Yugoslavia in the early 1990s. He's now a theology professor uh, at uh, Yale Divinity School. He witnessed the mass prejudice and Christians in ways that were reminiscent to him of the Holocaust in World War II. And he has spent much of his life trying to understand how religion, Christianity in particular, can promote mass prejudice and violence. And to make sense of this, he distinguishes between calls thin Christianity and thick Christianity or religion. Thin religion, according to Wolf, involves a misconstrued, superficial, vague, and formulaic kind of faith that selfishly serves primarily to energize and heal. That is to energize me and to heal me. It's often influenced by factors outside of the faith itself, including national or economic interests. In contrast, he says, thick religion maps a way of life and connects with an ongoing tradition with strong ties to its origins and history. Thick religion connects deeply with a sacred text, which is here, which, properly understood, encourages love of one's neighbor, no matter what the neighbor's background will be. Wolf concludes that thin but zealous practice of the Christian faith is likely to foster violence. Thick and committed practice will help generate and sustain a culture of peace. It seems, he says, that much of the Christianity practiced during the Holocaust likely was a quite thin, motivated mostly by national, economic, and self-interest. Indeed, Nazism and Christianity sometimes were merged during the Holocaust in dramatically twisted ways. A thicker Christianity would have drawn more deeply from Scripture and tradition to bear witness to a countercultural love of neighbor, despite differences in background and in spite of the possible threat of harm. This kind of behavior is, after all, 
what Jesus exemplified and taught. Then I'll conclude with a quote from him that also should appear on your screen. The cure again. Faith. But in a carefully qualified sense, more of the Christian faith. I don't mean, of course, that the cure against violence lies in increased religious zeal. Blind religious zeal is part of the problem. Instead, it lies in stronger and more intelligent commitment to the Christian faith as faith. We're now moving into a section of Acts in which the state, the empire, is starting to use violence against the church, rooted in economic and national and self-interest. And this story is also about how the community of Jesus followers responds. And as I've already noted, the story starts out with another Herod. And Willie James Jennings writes this, another King Herod appears in Luke's story, and he is much like the other King Herod who was acquainted. This King Herod deploys the same, but now used against Jesus' followers. Agrippa, who, as I've already said, was the grandson of Herod the Great, was someone who tried in every single way he could to ingratiate himself, to make peace, to cross the gap between the Roman Empire invaders of, of Judah at that time and the people. There's all kinds of stories of the things he did to bridge that gap, and maybe you picked it up very much at the beginning of this chapter he killed James, the, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he thought, okay, let's try this again because it seems to be working. I'm making a connection to the people. And what were the tools that Herod used to promote his cause? Well, it's pretty clear they were the tools of execution and the tools of prison, or the tools of violence. Jennings writes this again in his comments on this chapter. Just as we never leave the presence of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit in Luke's narrative, we never leave sight of the prison. And this prison theme is going to appear all the way through Acts right up until the end because the very last story of the book of Acts is with the Apostle Paul where? In prison. Things goes on further. The prison always announces worldly power and reveals those intoxicated with the lust for violence merely from the site of the cell but from the place of the warden, the guards, and those Benefiting financially and politically from the mechanisms of incarceration. What would the state be without prison? Indeed, to challenge the prison is to challenge the state's very existence. That was true in the time of the Roman Empire. That's been true in the time of every empire. And I think as we all probably know, it's true in our own empire. 
Michelle Alexander, author of the book, The Dude, I think it was 10 years ago, but it might be 20, it's 10, this. The system of mass incarceration in the United States is rotten to its core. As Kaya Stern eloquently explains in her book, Voices from American Prisons, the quintupling of our prison populations in a few short decades and the relegation of tens of millions of people to a permanent second-class status is a reflection of the fact that we in the United States play, quote, spirit punishment. She writes, there is no more pressing human rights issue, no more urgent spiritual crossroads or threat to democracy than the current penal crisis. We in the United States are in a lot of ways acting exactly like Herod Agrippa to maintain our power by using violence, and in this case, particularly in the form of the prison. So the question is, what does thin Christianity think about the prison system, capital punishment, race issues, gun violence, militarism, nationalism in our country? These are very real questions. Our country is in a huge amount of turmoil on all kinds of levels, and this is a huge one. I referred a couple of weeks ago to Kristen Kobes Dumais' book, Jesus and John Wayne. And she writes early in the book, more than any other religious demographic in America, white evangelical Protestants support preemptive war, condone the use of torture, and favor the death penalty. They are more likely than members of other faith groups to own a gun, to believe citizens should be allowed to carry guns in most places, and to feel safer with a firearm around. Is that thin Christianity? I'm just asking the question. What would thick Christianity look like as we think about the prison systems, capital punishment, race issues, gun violence, and militarism, nationalism in the United States? So here's Herod impressing his prison and his violence on the early Christians. And here's the United States pressing its incarceration rates and violence on our communities. How do we as Christians think about that? And I asked that question of Acts chapter 12. So what did the Jesus followers of that time do when they were faced now, not with persecution from the Jewish leaders, from the theologians, but from the empire? What did the early church do? Well, they did at least, I found, three things. Number one, they accepted the prison. Right? All through the book of Acts, there's an acceptance of the prison. There's an acceptance of possible death. There's acceptance of martyrdom and all through the early history of the church. Jennings, again, 
We Christians speak truth to power, which will put us again and again behind locked doors and braced by chains. Christians, no one else should understand how easy it is to return to prison, not because of human failing, but because of failed systems that are calibrated against the the weak and the poor best against insurgent voices for systematic change. The church is formed in a pedagogy of prison that we must get, lest we forget ourselves and forsake our mission. Thick Christianity, I would suggest to you, accepts the prison. If we're going to speak truth to power, if we're going to follow Christ into the darkest places of our societies and the world, then that is going to mean perhaps prison, persecution, being excluded, being put out of the mainstream. And the early church, the community of Jesus followers, did that and accepted that. The second thing they did, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for to God, fervent prayer, diligent prayer, earnest prayer. There's an interesting thing here when you think about it. I'm not going to do a sermon on prayer right now because there's not, there's not time. Just a couple comments. One is, it's not necessarily true that if we pray, or if we pray long enough, or hard enough, or use the right words, that we'll get what we pray for. I find it hard to believe that when James was referred to in verse 2 of this chapter, was captured and was killed by the sword, the church didn't pray for him. Right? It's the same church. If they prayed when Peter was in prison, they prayed when James was in prison. James lost his head. Right within a couple verses. Here's James loses his head. Peter gets freed by an angel. Your prayer is not, and the Bible's full of this, of course, and our lives are full of this. Just the simple fact that we pray fervently, earnestly, diligently doesn't mean that God is going to give us what we ask. Mother Teresa put it this way, prayer is not asking. Prayer is putting oneself in the hands of God at his disposition and listening to his voice in the depth of of our hearts. Prayer is connecting yourself to God and to his kingdom. Elizabeth Elliot puts it this way. Prayer lays hold of God's plan. See that? God's plan. And becomes the link between his will and its accomplishment on earth. Amazing things happen, and we are given the privilege of being the channels of the Holy Spirit's prayer. Prayer links us to God and to his work and to his plan and to his kingdom and perhaps allows us to endure the prison in ways that we might have not been able to had we not prayed. 
And Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, writes this. What do I lose when I have a praying life? I lose control. I lose independence. What do I gain? Friendship with God, a quiet heart, the living work of God in the hearts of those I love, the ability to roll back the tide of evil. Essentially, I lose my kingdom and get his. I move from being an independent player to a dependent lover. I move from being an orphan to a child of God. So this prayer that the early church was doing and that has been done throughout the centuries of the church is not designed to guarantee a result that both James and Peter would live. It's to to connect us to God, to his purposes, to his kingdom, to see the world through his eyes. And then to take what he grants us and to receive the energy we need to do his will, to be the hands and feet and eyes and ears of Jesus in this world. And that moves us to the third thing that the church did. Maybe you noticed it, the last, very last verse that we read, verse 24. Word of God increased and multiplied. And when you see these words, the word of God, and I, I think I say this quite often everywhere in the, in the New Testament, you shouldn't just think of the Bible. You should think of the Bible, but not only the Bible. The word of God is, is in the New Testament, the word made flesh. It's the logos. It's Jesus. And it's in us who've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and dwell in Christ. And, and we are sent out as the, as the arms and feet and eyes and ears of Jesus into this world. The, world made, the word made flesh is then in us going out. And it's a word of justice and liberation, especially for the prisoner. Of whatever kind that prisoner is. See Luke 4, where Jesus starts his ministry in the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah. The Spirit of God has anointed me to, to, to free the prisoner, to make the blind see again, to make the lame walk again. And today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. So this moving out of the word, this increasing and multiplying of the word is, is again, not just Bible study. It's way more than that. It's feeding, it's connecting with the, with the Spirit through prayer, getting guidance, and moving out in this world to free those who are imprisoned. And, and I haven't read this only in Jennings, but Jennings focuses on it a fair amount in his book. It's a word of liberation, not only for the prisoner, not only for the person who's imprisoned, but for the person who is doing the, imprison, the imprisoning. What happens to these guards who got waylaid by this angel? They died. They were imprisoned as much as Peter was, even though they were representing empire. Remember the Philippian jailer? We're going to read about him, I don't know, in a few weeks. 
Paul and Silas are in prison. And what are they doing there? Speaking of accepting the prison, they're singing. Earthquake comes, they're free. The jailer has nothing to do with it. He's been doing his job and still the prison's open. And what are his words to Paul and Silas? What must I do to be saved? He was in as much trouble as anybody else, even though he's representing the empire and representing the power. So our call as Christians is to accept the prison, to pray, and then to be the word of God, to, to, to dwell in Christ, to feed on the word of God, and to move into our society seeking liberation and healing for everyone, regardless of who they are, which position they are. Remember what we talked about two weeks ago with Cornelius. There's nothing common anymore. There's nothing common anymore. So what is your Christianity? What kind of Christianity is it? What kind of Christianity is our Christianity? Is it superficial? Is it vague? Is it a little bit based on formulas, things that we've learned? Is it a bit focused on myself? It helps me, it energizes me, it gives me comfort. And in the end, I'll get to go to heaven when I die. Not that those aren't important things, but that's the focus. And perhaps is it influenced by factors outside of yourself? As Wolf would say, factors of nationalism or economic interests or group interests. I think those are really important questions to ask ourselves as a community. What kind of faith do we have? Is it thin? Does it map a way of life? Does it connect the story of today with the story of God's work and the movement of his kingdom through the history? Does it connect us with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, with the written word? Does it encourage us to love our neighbor no matter what that neighbor's background may be? Does it generate and sustain a culture of peace? Does it stand up? To oppression and does it work in community that's a thick faith a faith that would be able to look at our world look at our culture look at our society and under the leading of the Holy Spirit say what needs to be changed and how is God sending me out to be an instrument of that change and that peace in the world in which I find myself. Because none of us are free until all of us are free. And that includes both the prisoner and the one who's imprisoned, imprisoning. That includes Peter and that includes Herod. None of us is free until all of us are free. That will only work And that perspective will only come 
And the power to live that way will only come when we're connected to this Jesus Christ who accepted the prison. He went willingly to the cross. Who before he went to the cross in that garden with sweat, uh, sweat drops like blood falling from his head said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. It's the second thing. And the third thing is he hung on that cross and then he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The word of God increased and grew. See how that works? I encourage you, especially as we're coming back from COVID, we're thinking, what does it mean to be Trinity Church? What kind of a group are we? What do we do? How do we function in the world in which we find ourselves? This may be a time for reevaluation. Are we going to be thin? Or are we going to be thick? Let's pray. Lord, help us to um, grow deeper in our knowledge of you and in our ability to uh, follow you through the, the complexities of the world in which we find ourselves. Nothing is easy. But yet we want to go as your people, together with you, driven by your spirit and moving in the way the early church did and being fruitful and seeing your word and your kingdom increase and multiply. Help us to do that, we pray, as individuals and as a community. In Jesus' name, amen.